Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness and meditation and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. All right. Today, my guest is former nuclear submarine officer, Justin Nasiri. Justin is a serial entrepreneur, the founder of Storybox, Beyond the Uniform, and Transparent Technologies. Beyond the Uniform is the number one iTunes rated podcast for military transition resources with 330 plus interviews and 200,000 plus listens. He is a graduate, graduate of the United States Naval Academy and Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he's been a meditation practitioner for about eight years. We're going to find out a lot more about Justin, his time in the Navy, his transition, his move to becoming a serial entrepreneur, and his walk down the meditation path. And that's all here in today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is former nuclear submarine officer and serial entrepreneur, Justin Nasiri. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you so much for having me, John. I was such a big fan of uh, the work you're doing when, when you were on Beyond the Uniform, and it's a real honor to, to be back on your show. All right, thanks. Yeah, like I said before, uh, before we hit record, hopefully I will do half as well as a host as you did. You crushed it, and uh, I'm looking forward to having you on the other side of the microphone, You know, being the one answering the questions. So uh, I think it's really going to be a new learning experience for me. So thanks, uh, thanks for being here. Um, yeah, so we'll jump jump right into it. You know, I introduced you as a, a former nuclear submarine officer. Um, you went to the Naval Academy, fellow Naval Academies, and I know your brother is a classmate of mine, um, fellow Naval Academy alumni. Um, so you went from Annapolis to nuclear submarine training, and and walk us through your naval career from there. How did that line up? Yeah, so um, did did five years on submarines. It was a you know training portion, and then spent most of my time on one of the bigger submarines, the USS Alaska. Spent um, most of my time there, and then towards the end, I, I was planning on getting out. But before I made the decision, I thought I really want to feel like I've 
um, experienced everything, not everything submarines have to offer, but have seen both sides. So we, we literally, we pulled in on the Alaska. I flew out to Japan, joined a fast attack submarine, the, the USS Chicago, went out to sea with them for a couple, you know, probably a month or so, um, ended that deployment, got back on a plane, flew back and went back out with the USS Alaska. So Jeez. it was like a, yeah, it was a pretty intense, uh, I don't know, four to six month period. But I felt like at the end of it, I had at least the enough information to make the decision that I, it was right for me to leave. And a lot of that for me was, I, I wouldn't end up getting married for another 10 years, but I just thought, you know, I wanted to have a family life where I was present and physically present with my family and didn't see that being an option with, with my career choice. So decided to get out. And my thinking when I got out was as simple as I, I like managing people. I like uh, leadership. So if you're going to lead in the civilian world, it probably has something to do with business. So therefore, I'll go to business school. And that's, that's what I did right when I got out. Yeah. How did that uh, work out? You went to Stanford, I mean, which we all know is a fairly elite business school. How, uh, did you use post 9-11 GI Bill or what, what did you use to go there? I didn't. And um, I, I didn't qualify for it because I had just done five years and I'd come from the Naval Academy. And so um, I, had, I had used my second class loan from the Naval Academy to invest in a, in a house and it did well. And so nice. I used most of that money to, to pay for grad school. But um, you know, in, in retrospect, um, it's, it's pretty easy to get loans. And for me, Stanford was a life-changing experience. It was such a good two-year decompression from the military. And I, I didn't even think I had to decompress from the military. Like the whole time I was in, I just viewed myself as not, not GI Joe. I felt like I was pretty, um, I don't know. I wasn't like your typical military person. So I thought whatever. And, and in retrospect, I had a lot of decompressing to do. I think we all do. Yeah. And so those two years of just, it gave me like a normal college experience. I, I remember there, there was this girl I was dating at the, uh, at, at, when I first started. And I remember saying something like, oh, you know, on, on weekends, I could probably stay over at your place. She's like, what are you talking about? You can stay over my base anytime. And it was like still in that Naval Academy mindset of like, you only have the weekend. That's so, hilarious. Yeah, it was like two years to kind of get the lay of the land. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, uh, when you're a midshipman at the Naval Academy, your first two years, you're, you're basically at the Academy all, all week. Um, even on weekends, you, you, uh, you're there through the weekend. And then like your junior and senior year, you get to take a certain number of weekends away from what we call the yard or the campus. Um, and you even have to apply to get those weekends. Sometimes if we win a football game or something, we'll get a bonus. Um, but anyway, that's, that's hilarious that that, that <laughs> survived not only the, the time that you're in the, the Navy, but then transitioned into your time at Stanford, man. I, I love that. It goes that. deep. It goes yeah. deep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, about your transition, you talked about decompressing. And I know now, obviously, you run your, your transition-focused podcast. Uh, what was your military transition like? How did that go for you? I think, I think when you go to grad school or go to college after you get out, it's a little bit of a shortcut because you're kicking the can down the road on what am I going to do with my life. So I, I had <laughs> you know, two years where it was definitely top of mind, but it wasn't like I had any responsibility. It wasn't like I, I had anything to do other than just play around and figure out what I wanted to do. 
So my, my transition, and I would recommend this for anyone. I had, um, I had like maybe four, three, four months between when I got out of the military and when I started grad school. And so one, I, I moved back home. I had missed my, my time with my parents and wanted to have time with them. And then I, I took about two months to travel and that was great. I, I traveled all throughout Southeast Asia, traveled nice. in Africa, and it was, it was a great way to just um, make up for, not make up for lost time, but just to have fun. And Were you solo to, for that? Um, I was solo for about half of it and then half of it I was with my brother. Yeah. Wow, man. That's awesome. And, and both of those played their role. Even the time my, my parents at the time were living in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. You know, I would work out every day and watch TV and read and just do nothing. And I don't think that in the military or just, excuse me, people in general, we, we give us ourselves enough time to just do nothing. Like we're all, <laughs> we're always going to the next thing. And, you know, since that time, I haven't really had a break like that to just be selfish and do whatever I wanted and just kind of focus on me. I think there's a lot of value there. And I, you know, for, for your listeners, I don't think we realize when we're in the military, how much of our life is other focused. Everything we're doing is in service of a greater mission, our crew, our team. And so having a little pocket, if you're able to, to just be selfish, I think is great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's very important that transitioning service members realize that. And, you know, listening to your show, Beyond the Uniform, uh, I'm sure many of the guests have, have talked about taking that break, not jumping straight into something else, not feeling that you have to be sprinting out of the gates. I mean, you've been sprinting for your military career, whether that's three years, whether it's 30. And uh, I think you will benefit long-term by taking some time to yourself. My wife and I, I will be working, but we're going to be jumping in my RV, as I mentioned on your show, uh, jumping in our RV and spending a couple months cruising around the country and seeing the places that we've never had a chance to see. I mean, the, most of the trips across the country have been in between moves or during a move, right? Moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, having six days to drive. And you're like, well, I got to crush, you know, eight to 12 hours of driving I guess technically eight hours because you're not supposed to drive longer than that for the Navy, right? <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> yeah, so you, you, we've seen it, but it's all been at, at hyperspeed. So I'm looking forward to that, that break. As far as- Just know, one thing on that, because I, I, I got to check the box on getting a submarine reference in. Um, one <laughs> of the things I, I love is these, um, you know, the, the nuclear missiles that may or may not be on submarines. Um, one of the ways that they work is that when they shoot into outer space into orbit, they, they release, uh, uh, let's just call it a container that has the nuclear warheads. And it, it literally starts taking photos of the stars. And it uses those photos, it compares it to its, its database, and it uses the photos to reorient the warheads so that they'll go towards the right target. And that's the analogy I think of when I heard what you were saying about the, the time in the RV is like giving ourselves time to reorient, just to just spin around in space, figure out where we want to go, what direction we want to head. And then, you know, then you unleash Armageddon. And, it's, <laughs> um, and I, think, I think that most people who come from a military background, when we know what our mission is, when we know what we're going after, we are unstoppable. But we don't often, or at least myself, I don't give myself enough room 
to, to figure out what my next mission is, to figure out what I'm going after. And I think why that's so hard is it's not, it's not as linear as, as the execution that I'm so good at. It requires being bored. It requires being in an RV and driving for eight hours a day. It, 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 it requires unplugging and recharging and, and doing things that we don't normally do. And that's why I think that reorientation period throughout our life is really important. Right, right. Hang on just one second. I'm going to pause here. All right. So just had to deal with a little working at home uh, issue back downstairs. But real quick, coming back to that missile breaking up after it exits the uh, the atmosphere and then taking photos of the stars. That's incredible, man. And I'm not, I love the analogy. But so well played, well played. I love it. So um, as far as your transition, going to Stanford, kind of kicking the can down the road, you said, which, which I don't think going to Stanford and getting your MBA there is necessarily kicking down the, the can down the road. But how did you decide that you were going to start beyond the uniform and specifically focus on transition? So, you know, I, I started beyond the uniform at the time I was like five or six years out of the military. And um, my, my experience was I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out of the military. And two years at Stanford, you know, I was having lunch with friends who were investment bankers and private equity. And like, you just kind of threw osmosis, just like in the same way um, at the Naval Academy, I, I was around people who had been on a submarine. So I learned about that. And, you know, you just start to pick up like what the options are. And so it was always a point of frustration for me because most of the guys that I, I served with on submarines, they got out of the military and then they went into like a civilian nuclear power plant. And that's, that's fine. Or, or, or government contracting. That's fine. I'm not knocking those industries, right. but it wasn't because that was their purpose. It wasn't because that was their mission. It wasn't because that was what that worked best for their family. It was more of like, they, they, that they was got, easy. yeah, that was the easy one. They got off the bus and that was where the bus stop was. So they, they set up camp there. <laughs> and so I was viewing things through, you know, at that point I'd been doing startups for five years and it was just kind of the, the typical startup thing, which is here's something that sucks. How do you find a way to, to, to fix that? And at the time I was listening to a lot of Tim Ferriss and he, he has a po popular podcast. Yeah, and I very. Thought, yeah. I thought like, I don't have, I'm like, I got a couple hours a week <laughs> to devote to this purpose. And so I can't be coming up with the answers. I can't be researching and then recording a podcast but here's a great format. I can meet with people who have different career paths who served in the military, and I can just have them explain what it's like, what they like, how they got their advice. And that's really been the, the premise of the, the show for the last three years. And it was been a, it's been a nice way to be able to, on, on nights and weekends, continue the podcast while I, I work full time on other things. Wow. So this is a, a side gig that you do voluntarily on nights and weekends while you've got a, a what how old is your one kid at home uh 14 months 14 months yeah dude more power to you <laughs> yeah that's, that's amazing yeah. so what about the ramp up of beyond the uniform uh like did you expect it to be the amazing success that it is um i i don't think i had expectations on what it would look like and you know, I think that sometimes that uh, having spent nine, 10 years in Silicon Valley, sometimes the expectation is the opposite. It's kind of like you expect things 
to become Facebook, you know? And, and I remember, um, yeah. you know, you don't have that many, I didn't have that many data points. All you have is like, okay, Tim Ferriss has millions of people listening to his show. And so I think that becomes the, 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 the deep, deep seated expectations. Like, well, maybe that will be it. Right. And then you start to look at the numbers and you're like, okay, there's 200,000 vets that leave the military every year. Like the, 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 the population is just a lot smaller. So I think that, um, to be honest, at first, I think I was impatient. I was like pouring so much of my time and energy into it and then wanting to see, I don't know, like the, the VA get behind us or yeah. USAA or all these other things. And the, the truth is even, you know, even at this point, 350 episodes in and all of these listens, we're still, we're still a very tiny blip in, in the, the military landscape and then not even noticeable outside of that ecosystem. And I just say that because I think it's a good reminder for, for myself and for listeners to, to make sure that we're doing things intrinsically motivated. Because if I was relying on external praise or even external support, I would have quit two years ago. And yeah. I definitely go through peaks and troughs on that. But for the most <laughs> part, I uh, have been able to sustain it because it's, it's coming from a place of like, I want to give back. It's a great creative expression for me. I get value from it as well. And so even if in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't feel like it's, um, you know, going to be made into a Netflix series. It's like, that, that's not the purpose. That, that's right. not the, the measure of success here. Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's, you mentioned, uh, you know, the intrinsic motivation and really understanding your why. Uh, funny enough, I, I just finished up uh, reading Deliberate Discomfort, uh, from written by a friend, uh, Jason Van Camp, and several other friends contributed to it. And they, they speak about that. And then obviously Daniel Pink's book, Drive, speaks about the intrinsic motivation and how extrinsic motivation can actually be a detractor or you know, inhibit some of your, the work that you do. But if you understand your why, then you can, you can really get up in the morning and, and attack what it is you're going after. So it's, it's apparent that you understand your why with Beyond the Uniform. Although um, those numbers that you mentioned there uh, at the beginning of the show, I said 330 plus, you said 350 interviews. I'm guessing that's since, since uh, you sent me the, uh, the metrics, it's changed quite a bit. But that's, that's hugely successful. And, uh, I mean, uh, congratulations to, to you on that. Um, Thank you. What is like the, the standard um, thing that some of your guests come on the show and say is the toughest part about transition? Hmm. Um, one, one trend is definitely identity. And again, I like to use myself as an example because I'm not, I'm not GI Joe. It's not like all of my friends, you know, at this point, most of my friends are surprised that I served in the military. And, and um, so it's not like I, I viewed I, you know, I'm a soldier, I'm a sailor, like that w didn't feel like a big part of my identity. And many of the guests I've had on the show are similar where it's, you know, for some of them, it's, it is who they are. They served 20, 30 years for others. It wasn't. And, and regardless, I think that all of us go through a pretty big reorientation when we leave and we realize like for me and for most people that that crew that I served with was my family. And I had such a clear purpose and I derived so much meaning from knowing that I was giving back to my country, that my, even if I was doing something small on a submarine in the middle of the ocean, even if no one knew what I was doing, I was contributing in some small part to something I believed in very much. 
And so when you leave and you take off that uniform, it's not just refiguring out what you're going to wear each day. It's not just figuring out what your job is going to be. It's not just where you're going to live or who your friends are, any of those things, but it's, it's even deeper of like, what's, what's my purpose. And I don't think, you know, one of the trends I've seen is that most of the guests on the show don't realize like what a vacuum that creates. And not only it might be different if, if we were, you know, if I was on my submarine with my crew and my friends and attacking this problem, that would be one thing, but we're plucked out of that comfortable area and we're dropped in a completely new environment with new people. And it's, it's a lot to handle in isolation. So right. identity is one piece. And then a second piece is um, the, the one thing that I, I'm, I'm still figuring out how to art articulate this, but I think that most of us are not served by um, a sense of entitlement. I think that's the number one challenge facing veterans in their transition. And the way that I experience that is that literally from day one at the Naval Academy until year five on submarines, there was this pervading sense of your nation owes you a debt of gratitude. Like you are special and, and people are gonna be lining up to hire you. And whether that's true or not, I think that's the worst possible attitude you can have when you transition. Mm -hmm. Because most people, you know, I'll say for myself, I've been out 10 years now. The fact that I served will get me questions at a, at a party. Like people want to know what a submarine is like for two minutes, maybe that. <laughs> and I, I've probably been bought a beer maybe three times. And I would say that like, that's the extent of, of gratitude. And I get a lot of like, hey, oh, thank you for your service, things like that. Sure. But it's not like people are lining up to hand me a job. It's not like people are lining up to tell me like, oh, you should try this out. Like you're really, if that was my expectation, I'm going to be very underprepared and I'm going to be very disappointed and bitter. And I don't blame service members. I think that's the resounding message we get is like, you're great. And you're, you know, all your, all your civilian peers, you're just going to blow them out of the water. And one of the first guys I interviewed on the podcast, Britt Young, he said, look, I took the mindset that I was eight years behind every one of my civilian peers because while I was serving in the military, it wasn't like they were playing with Lincoln logs. They were working <laughs> just as hard in their career. They were developing finance skills, but all these other skills. And that's not to say that you can't catch up. Most of the people I've had on the show have accomplished incredible things. Like they have demonstrated that they succeeded in the military and in the civilian world. But I think the reason they achieved that success was they went into it with their eyes wide open and said, look, I'm going to have to work my ass off to, to get to catch up. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the people I've had on the show, um, Jimmy Sopko, this guy left the military at eight years and he became a customer support person at Pinterest. He was surrounded by people eight years younger than him, surrounded by people straight out of college. And he had to, to let his ego go and, and work alongside them. And he rapidly progressed much for, faster than anyone else. Like he rapidly accelerated, but he had to take a third pay cut. He had to take, you know, uh, a seniority dip. And I, I think that if we come to that decision expecting pay parity or seniority parity, it's, it's going to just lead to disappointment. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think it also has to do with how long you've served, some of the hard skills that you do learn in the military, some of the soft skills that you learn in the military. Um, but yes, absolutely. I think um, that those two things are, are huge, loss of identity. And then um, we need to all have kind of a, a, a piece of that humble pie as we transition out. Um, but going back to the, the loss of identity, I think some of it also, it's not just you know, the loss of the uniform and the loss of the tribe, but seeing that that tribe continues on without you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a, a buddy used an analogy. It's like a, a bucket of water. And if you stick your fist in that bucket of water and you, you are that fist, right. And as soon as you pull that fist out, that bucket of water is still a bucket of water. Mm. Uh, you know, it doesn't change that much. It's going to continue doing what it's supposed to be doing. And all the, all the units that we're a part of, they're going to continue doing what they're supposed to be doing and that's serving our country. And that can be tough too, is saying, saying, well, what part did I play? Looking back that your unit is continuing without you. Um, but the part that you did play was huge. It was important. And now somebody else is playing that part and just realizing that um, is, is a, a critical piece to it. So, so and I, I think that can also help with the humility is, is realizing, hey, you know what? Somebody else could do the job that you did. So now move on and let's, uh, let's see what the civilian world holds for you. So, and, and maybe that can help with the uh, doing away with that sense of entitlement. Not, you are not, um, I don't know, God's gift to the civilian world when you get out. Uh, yeah. So it's, that's important. Um, as far as the serial entrepreneurship that you had, so I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Storybox and Transparent Technologies. Can you tell us about what those are? Yeah, so um, straight out of Stanford, I started the company that would become Storybox, and it's a uh, marketing technology company. Um, what it does today is, uh, if, if someone posts a photo on Instagram wearing a, a Patagonia jacket, our software finds the photo, automatically requests permission to use that photo on behalf of Patagonia, and then would add it to Patagonia's website so that when you're looking at that jacket, rather than seeing a model or just the, the, the static product, you see a real person using it. It's much more relatable, much more authentic. So that was the first company I started and raised uh, $3 million. I had Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt, invest. And nice. um, yeah, that was an incredible experience. And as we'll probably get into with, with my own journey with, with meditation, yeah. um, incredibly stressful. It <laughs> was uh, a roller coaster as entrepreneurship has been, you know, since I've been doing it. It's uh, moments of feeling like a genius and feeling like, God's gift to the world, and then a moments of feeling like the biggest idiot. <laughs> uh, you know, in my own journey, I went from a solo founder, I grew the team to 20 people, and then shrunk it to four, and did that dozens of times. And wow, it, yeah, it really wears on your. Um, it, it really wears on your emotions. It's a lot of stress, and um, so we can come back to that. But um, and then uh, you know, since then have dabbled in a lot of things, but transparent technologies is kind of the umbrella that I use to do a lot of things. So primarily I do a lot of independent consulting right now, but also I use transparent technologies as kind of the single holding company to experiment with new ideas. Cause I would like to, to start another uh, product based company again. Nice man. That, uh, that story box, that's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, 
so when was that that you did that year wise that was uh started in 2009 it continues today yeah we have um we had a uh, at one point over 35 fortune 500 companies using it so like disney and levi's and budweiser and budweiser did a case study with us and like this is the best it's called user generated content they said this is the best user generated content platform we've ever used and there's just so many things along there that uh are pretty incredible and I've learned about myself. One thing that I really like is creating. I like yeah. is like an artist aspect of that. And so the process of taking what was a, essentially a napkin sketch of an idea and then over time seeing that being a, a literal product that people around the world are using. And I feel the same sense with Beyond the Uniform of like an idea and then you see people in 78 countries listening to it that's very energizing, very fulfilling for me to, to feel like I'm bringing something new into the world. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that that is fascinating, man. I'm going to have to look more into that. Are you still with them or did you end up turning that over? So I, I got it to the point where it uh, requires about two hours, uh, about two hours a month to maintain. It, it generates quite a bit of revenue. And nice. it got to the point where we realized it couldn't be there was a, it got very competitive. I didn't really see a clear path to it becoming, you know, an IPO or an acquisition. And yet we were adding a lot of value for clients. And over that eight years I was running it, I was able to put a lot of systems into place where I didn't have to do a lot of the day-to-day -day type of things. And so I got to a position that I would love to do with other companies, which is really just overseeing a machine that's running on its own and having other people take care of the maintenance of it and then just kind of inserting myself whenever I needed. Very cool, man. Well, I, I could talk to you for hours about that, but obviously that's not the focus of the show here, uh, but I, I am very interested in that. Um, so obviously the focus of the show is to break down the stigma that kind of surrounds meditation and mindfulness and then just seeking mental health support. Um, you have a background in meditation. I'm curious how you got started and why you got started. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So I think I think on the roller coaster, uh, you know, the the 20th or 30th downfall on my startup journey with Storybox, um, I, I at, um, at some point met my wife, and when I met her, I was probably 20 pounds overweight. Um, I would work from 6 a.m. until 9 or 10 p.m. Monday through Friday, I would on Friday smoke a ton of pot and not sleep at all and then work most of Saturday and Sunday. I was just in this like extremely physically unhealthy area yeah. and um, financially was just not paying attention to where my money was going and just emotionally extremely volatile. And I think one great thing about relationships or partnerships is that I think I was so in it, I didn't even see that. Actually, um, the, the story I like to tell, or, or I hate to tell, but I'll share is um, <laughs> when, when I first met my wife, um, it was within you know, weeks, we kind of knew we were gonna get married. It was very, very instantaneous. And um, we flew out to meet my parents. It was uh, a trip that was on the books and um, I told them not to read into it, but I'm like, look, I've already got this trip scheduled, but I'm gonna bring her along because I'd rather spend the weekend with her. And we flew out, she met my parents, they loved her. My dad, when we left, was like, hey, if you guys break up, we're going with her. And it was like <laughs> the best possible trip, like exactly what I wanted. And on the flight back, you know, at 10,000 feet, flying back home, I just 
completely lost my shit. It was something about me freaking out about, oh, the company is going to go under, all my employees are going to quit, I'm going to be a failure, I'll never get employed again. And, and my wife brought that up days later, and I, I didn't even remember it. It was like, oh. yeah, it was just kind of like so part of my roller coaster emotional journey that it was like, it didn't even stick out to me until she brought it up. Wow. So she just said, hey, I think you should see a therapist. And I'm really grateful that I was open to that. Um, and so I met with a therapist and um, worked with him for years. And we can talk about therapy, but I'm a huge, huge advocate of that. But the therapist that I ended up working with, he, he was a very, very lifelong meditator. And he would spend one month every year, he did this for over 10 years, one month every year, he'd go on a silent meditation retreat. For a month. For a month. A wow. Month, which I still haven't done and I would love yeah. to do. But, um, and so that was kind of like, for me, um, that was my introduction. And then I took uh, what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Sure. I took, um, an MBSR course, which was at, offered at UCSF. And my wife and I did that together. And it's a very data-backed approach to learning about the benefits of meditation. And so that kind of got me more comfortable with it. And at the end of that, we did a, a day-long silent meditation retreat. So like eight to five, we just spent in silence meditating. And that felt great. And so then I took the plunge on doing a week-long silent meditation retreat and continued to do that. And that kind of started this path on a lot of the personal growth work that's been meaningful for me. But I really view mindfulness and meditation as the, the foundation of of um, what I do to be a better person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it can definitely make you a better person. I feel the same way in that it's changed how I view life. It's changed how I deal with stress and anxiety, but it's also changed how I communicate with others, how I uh, relate with others. It's changed my empathy. I mean, <clears throat> if you had uh, looked at me four years ago compared to who I am today, I feel that I'm a completely different person. And it's, I attribute, you know, a large portion of that to mindfulness meditation. I also attribute a large portion of that to my awesome wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. which it yeah. sounds like. Hand in hand with me. Yeah. Yeah. And hang on just one second, brother. So I had a casualty with my mic here this, um, this weekend where uh because we're indoors and all my stuff is at the house <laughs> mm. uh, my dog uh ran across this table that's in the upstairs uh guest room and uh ended up tearing up my mic equipment so <laughs> sorry i dropped i dropped off there for a second but yeah we we're we we're just talking about um you know our, our wives and how they have helped <laughs> as well yeah. I think or, or, or spouses significant others uh i think that having somebody that can look at us and let us know when uh, we are doing something differently uh, or doing something wrong, kind of that mirror to show us who we truly are. I 100% um, I, I agree. So I, I, view, I view partnership, uh, whatever that is for listeners, like I view that as the, the word, hopefully it's not triggering for your audience. The word for me is spiritual practice. Like I view it as the PhD level spiritual practices being in partnership. And I know for myself that if, if I was like on my own, 
without my wife, I could have this pristine image of who I am. And I'm right. a great guy. I'm this great friend. And because I'm living in so, such close proximity with someone who sees me day in and day out and sees me at my worst and at my best, it's really humbling. And I, I feel like we, I think that we attract the people who kind of trigger us most, you know, and can lead to our deepest healing. But I, I view that like the best way to, for self-improvement is through relationships because you really have someone who has the, the holistic view of you and that knows how to push your buttons and right. really forces you to be honest about where you need to improve. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, I'm, I'm glad you hit that part. This, the, the improvement part, you talked about healing, but it's also growth and yeah. we get so much growth by learning where our weak spots are, our chinks in our armor. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as far as your daily practice, what does your daily practice look like now? So I, um, kind of the biggest work that I do right now is, is like men's groups work. And I've done that in a variety of capacities, but I um, started a program last year. It's a year long program. And I just started the second year of it this year. And through that group, I met um, two other guys. And for the last nine months, we've met every weekday from nine to nine 30. We meet on zoom and nice. we, do, we, we practice together for half an hour. And so our practice varies. We rotate who leads each time. And um, sometimes it's like a physical practice, like kind of like yoga or breath work, or um, I wrote down the book, you said, um, deliberate discomfort. Yeah. Um, some of the practice we do is these, these things we've learned about kind of creating physical discomfort and learning to be open to them and being able to breathe during them rather than shut down. But a, a lot of it is meditation. And so um, my daily practice is like that 30 minutes and there's almost always at least 10 minutes of mindfulness. And um, to, to, you know, to me, that's just a lot of just trying to be aware of whatever's going on and being okay with whatever's going on and not pushing away discomfort and not clinging to what feels good, but just moment by moment being open and honest with whatever's happening. Right. And um, the most humbling thing that I've heard is that that therapist that is a good friend of mine now, but um, that I worked with for two to four years, who's did, did those month long meditation retreats. I remember seven, eight years ago, I said, like, wow, I can see how, you know, how it really takes a lot of consistent practice over months to get better at this. And, and what he said that stuck with me is he, he said, Justin, progress with meditation is measured in decades. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man. And I've, I've, you know, in the eight years since I've seen that it really is true. It's like, it is something that like you practice daily and it takes, you know, it's, it's changing. It's changing the way that we show up. It's like literally I'll share one quick story on this. Um, I did this, uh, I don't know, it was like a seven or 10 day retreat. And, and, and we can talk about these retreats. I think they're exceptional. And um, so I go from essentially a week of not talking and doing nothing but meditating for a week. And you really, you just drop into a, like a very serene spot. And I went back the next day to work. And I had, for some stupid reason, I had scheduled like a 7 a.m. or an 8 a.m. call. Oh, geez. And at the time, we were raising money. And so, you know, when you're raising money for a startup, it's just nonstop tap dancing and asking for money. Right. And, and so, you know, I'm coming out of this Zen state and I go through my song, you know, my song and dance. And the 
person I was pitching to to give me money right away is like, hey, um, great idea. It's not for me. I'm not going to invest. And because I was coming out of this state of, of um, a lot of meditation, I noticed it was like in slow-mo. Like I noticed the part of me that felt deflated and disappointed and I felt embarrassed and I felt angry that he wasn't going to invest. I felt all of these things. And usually when I feel that I would be like, okay, thanks so much. Have a great day. And I, I just get off the phone as quickly as possible. But because I was in this slowed down state, it's almost like in the matrix, seeing the bullets whiz by you. And I was able to say like, oh, I noticed that I'm closing. I'm noticing that I want to get off the phone. And, and to me, this is kind of the essence of meditation. I was able to like notice that and then choose my response rather than just that knee jerk reaction to like, fuck it, I'm out. Yeah. I was able to say, okay, I'm not going to get money from this person. I'm feeling rejected. How do I want to choose to respond? And this is in, in seconds, but I shifted gears and just said like, hey, I know you're not going to spend money. Can you give me some candid feedback? Like what's, what's good? What's bad? And we nice. talked for another 45 minutes. It was an incredible conversation that I would have never had if I'd been in my habitual state of just let me avoid the awkward conversation and get out of here. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think we even discussed that when I was on your show. And I mean, that's a, an incredible example of, of, you know, the amygdala hijacking that you could have been victim to, yep. but rather you had that, that rational response, actually thought through it, even if it was milliseconds, your prefrontal cortex took over and rather than reacting, you responded. And I'm sure you learned a ton from that phone call. And I'm sure the, the, the person on the other end of that phone call appreciated your response um, you know, you're seeking feedback and it showed you, you know, who you truly are and, and what you wanted out of, uh, out of the conversation. So that, that's awesome, man. Um, what about, uh, you know, your, your coworkers or your co-founders, uh, do you tell them that you, you're a practitioner and if so, what's the typical response when you do? You know, the, um, when, when the company was in San Francisco and we had, it was a team of six or seven of us in the office every day, um, I actually brought in someone to teach us meditation. And I brought, nice. yeah, I, I brought people in and, and it was a real turning point for me that, that what I shared with them and like we had like a team meeting that was probably the most meaningful moment in my eight year experience. But what I shared with them was that I, um, realized that the success or failure of our company was, was pretty arbitrary. There's so many things external that, that play a role in whether a company succeeds or fails. But I wanted to know that when I had the football, when I had some, uh, some sense of power, that I was using it to, to make them better people, both in the office and out of the office. And that started this six month period where we would work out together and I'd bring people in to teach meditation. We'd meditate together and nice. it was completely optional, but I, I saw the benefit for myself and for them. So I'd say that through most of my career, I was pretty quiet about this, but that was the starting point of me just being open about, you know, this is something that I think has tremendous benefits. And I try to do the same, especially with, with therapy, because I think it's the most stigmatized of, um, I don't work with a therapist now, but over the last eight, 10 years, I've probably worked with one at least six years out of those 10. And I, I view it as like, um, you know, no one goes to the Olympics on their own. Like they have right. a coach or multiple coaches pointing out 
pointing out things to work on. And I feel like one of the greatest luxuries we have in life is, is to be able to be on the upper rank of Maslow's hierarchy and work on self-actualization. And I'm like, man, if I have the luxury to pay someone money to sit and listen to me and point out things I might not realize or blind spots, that's an incredible luxury. And, and investment. I, and investment, yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, the men's work I do and a lot of the work I've done is, is essentially that. It's, it's surrounding myself with people who can call me on my BS and can support <laughs> me and can challenge me. And a lot of the, the, the physical stuff I enjoyed in the military, it's like that sense, but emotionally, psychologically, mentally of, you know, someone stepping up and saying, hey, dude, I, I'm calling you out on this. I think that you're making the wrong call. And I think that's just so beneficial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Well, that's uh, that's big of you, man. I, I I love that that part of what you've got going on there, and and the fact that you brought that in so openly to your your startup, and and uh, it sounds like it's a part of your life now through and through. So good on you. Thank well, we're coming uh, coming to the end of the show, man. What have uh, what do we not discuss that you want to make sure my listeners uh, hear from you? Um, I I think it's we're we're fortunate to live in a time when there is so much evidence for, for people who are data driven like me, there's so much evidence of the benefits of, of meditation and mindfulness. And I think Tim Ferriss has done a great job of popularizing this and Definitely. Sam Harris and Dan Harris. And Dan and, Harris. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that one thing that I like with meditation, at least my experience has been, it's just kind of like a test and see type of mentality. When one teacher I had explained meditation is um, meditation is relaxed persistence. And he said, you know, each moment you're asking yourself, do I need more relaxation or do I need more persistence? And you're just constantly feeling in to what the moment needs. And so for listeners, like obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you're at least somewhat bought into to meditation. But I would say that with any of these areas of personal growth, to just take an omnivore's approach, try therapy, try executive coaching, try, there's so many things out there, read 10% happier, try, try these books. And if you don't like it, great, put it down and try something else. But to just always foster that sense of exploration and experimentation. And there's no failure here. If you go to Landmark and do their Landmark forum and you hate it, that's just as valuable as if you love it and get some sort of life-changing experience. And it's, it's, there's just so many great resources out there, but I would encourage you to do something and to do something out of your comfort zone where you're not alone. Because um, I think it's great to do these apps or things like that in isolation, but there is something very powerful about joining a group or a class or a workshop or a retreat something where there is a teacher, something where there's other practitioners. And for me, I felt that that's led to most of my growth. And, and the, the isolation portion is like part of your daily practice, but making sure that you're not going it alone. And I, I say that as someone who loves to go alone on everything, but I've realized that in, in, in becoming a better version of myself, we can't do that in isolation. We need other people holding us accountable, challenging us, supporting us, presenting alternate viewpoints. So I would encourage you to experiment, but to try to, to find others that can help you, um, help you grow as, as best as possible. 
Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. That's a big piece of what Veterans Path does is, is not just teach these practices to veterans, but also bring the veterans together as a community and then continue to do that through time uh, or over time through virtual means or by bringing the same people that have been on a retreat back together for an alumni retreat because that is a huge piece of it, holding one another accountable. I mean, it's just like having a working out partner or personal trainer. You know, sometimes if you don't have that, when you wake up in the morning, you're like, eh, I'm just going to roll over. I'll get that workout in later. And then it never happens. Well, the same thing with meditation. If you don't have somebody holding you accountable. You roll over in the morning, you're like, eh, I'll get that meditation later. And then it never happens. And then, you know, two, three days go by and then that turns into weeks. And next thing you know, you're not meditating anymore and you've lost all that those benefits that you built up over time because it is cumulative and it'll, it'll also fall away just as fast as, uh, as you built it up. 100%. Yeah. Well, great. Justin, if, uh, if people wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Um, probably the easiest one is just my, my first name, period, last name at, at Gmail, Justin period Nasiri at gmail.com. Um, I'm, I'm spotty on LinkedIn, and, uh, but direct email usually gets to me. Okay. All right. Well, I'll make sure that that email is in the, uh, the comments for the show. I'll obviously also link to your, your organizations and obviously your podcast too. His podcast is fantastic for transitioning service members, tons of lessons in there. So give it a listen. If you get a chance, Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show, brother. It's uh, been great reconnecting with you and, and learning more about you on the other end of the mic. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's so, so awesome and so powerful and, and uh, just a real honor to be on your show. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, all right, brother. Until we meet again or speak again, stay safe. And in this day and age, try to stay healthy, man. For our listeners and viewers, thank you again for listening to or watching our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button here on the podcast or here on YouTube. Leave us a comment, a review, a like, and again, share it with anyone you feel needs to hear our message. And remember, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.